Let me open in prayer. Father God, may your word dwell in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. As I say, it is the week before Christmas and to help us celebrate this season for all that it truly means, we have been looking beyond the manger, not because the manger is unimportant, but because we often miss just how important it is. And so in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus is our God. In Colossians chapter 1, that he is our peacemaker. In Philippians 2, that he is our example. And now in Hebrews 4 and 5, that he is our high priest. Now, the, the language of priest or high priest is probably fairly foreign to most of us, I would, I would suggest. Uh, and, and yet, that is the language that the Bible uses to reveal the person and the work of Jesus. And so we must understand it if we are to understand Jesus. And I'm just going to, for the first five minutes here, we're going to walk through verse chapter 5, just verses 1 through 10, and then we'll spend about 15 minutes in the three verses at the end of chapter 4, okay? So in chapters 5, 1, 1 through 10, there are three things we must understand about Jewish high priesthood, but more importantly, actually, about Jesus' high priesthood. And I've made it all very easy. They all begin with the letter S, okay? So you should be able to go away remembering at least these three things. And they are one, solidarity, two, sympathy, and three, selection. And so we're going to walk through those together and then, as I say, spend a bit more time reflecting on chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. So first, solidarity. This is, this is simple. In Israel, right, high priests were chosen from among the people. They were chosen from among the people. It sounds almost too simple to be a point, but it's important because it meant that they, they knew what it was like to be an Israelite. It meant that they could truly represent the people before God. It's like picking a captain from, from a team. So in chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Meaning this, if Christmas never happened, Jesus could never be our high priest. See that? If Christmas never happened, Jesus could never be our high priest. In order to represent humanity, right, one must be fully human. Actually, earlier in the book of Hebrews, we read, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, to be clear, as we'll discover later, Jesus never sinned, right? But he did. Jesus did experience everything else that it means to live as a real human being. And I think sometimes we can forget this. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows the weakness of suffering and the weakness of temptation. And he knows every other kind of human limitation. So there we are, the solidarity. Second, sympathy. High priests, right, were themselves weak. And so they should have been able to deal gently with 
the people. Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. When I was about eight or nine, I remember this very distinctly because it was such a powerful moment in my childhood. When I was about eight or nine, my dad discovered that I had been stealing money from his bedside drawers. (laughs) Thank you, Ray. Uh, well, as it turns out, yeah. Well, as, as you can imagine, I expected the very worst of consequences as an eight or nine-year-old. Um, and instead, my dad sat down and told me, actually, that he had done the same thing to his dad, his, his granddad about the same age. Now, the point is that he understood. He understood. He sympathised. And so he was able to deal with me gently. See that? It was a very powerful moment. So in the same way, high priests ought to have had sympathy because, well, they were sinners ministering to sinners. And although he never sinned, Jesus never sinned, sympathy characterises Jesus too. We read these words, incredible words actually, in um, in verses 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So Jesus' experience is both like ours and unlike ours. His experience was like ours in that he would get distressed. He would get distressed. And pray to the point of tears. Such a vivid description, isn't it, of of his human weakness and utter dependence on God the Father. But his experiences, unlike ours, is that in that when he was tempted and tempted he was, he didn't give in. Now we're going to come back to this a little later, so just tuck this one in your back pocket for now. But such endurance from Jesus actually involves more, not less, than ordinary human suffering. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And the verbs there, learned and suffered, are sort of like our no pain, no gain in, in English. It doesn't mean that he learned to obey, having failed to obey, rather that he learned through hard experience all that obedience requires, and so he became this high priest sympathetic to our human weaknesses. Once again in chapter 2 we read, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those being tempted. So, one, solidarity. Two, sympathy. Three, selection. And this is also a very, very simple point. But one could not simply appoint oneself high priest. Didn't work like that. Verse 4, and no one takes his honour on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. The very first high priest, Aaron, that's Moses' brother, was divinely installed, as were his heirs and his successors. And so the author makes a point that Jesus did not take on himself the glory of becoming high priest, but he too was chosen by God. And then he cites these Psalms as evidence. 
If you're looking on in your Bible, he cites Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Psalm 2 when it says, you are my son, today I have become your father. And Psalm 110 when it says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now these things might sound a little out of place for us, a little strange to us. But the author understood these Psalms to be ultimately speaking of Jesus. And the point is that Jesus did not seek to be high priest. He was selected to be high priest. And the author um, uses uh, um, Melchizedek there to emphasize that Jesus' high priesthood is an eternal high priest. Uh, You may have heard the name Melchizedek before. as this sort of strange uh, character that appears sometimes in the Bible. He is introduced in Genesis 14. He uh, makes an appearance in, uh, only by reference, in Psalm 110, and then again here in Hebrews, only three times, okay? Interestingly, when he is introduced in Genesis, he's introduced as a priest king, okay? When he's introduced in Genesis, there is no genealogy that's mentioned. In Genesis, where genealogies come like every second chapter, and you think, oh, not again. But actually, there is no genealogy for Melchizedek. There's no record of his origin. There's no record of his demise. And so he is used to represent a priesthood that is eternal. Hence, you were a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So there you have the three things that ought to have characterized, ought to have characterized Jewish high priesthood, but were ultimately fulfilled in and did characterize Jesus' high priesthood. Three S's, what were they? The first one was? Solidarity, sympathy, selection. Okay, keep those in mind as we continue. But now we can return, we can return now to the treasure chamber. That is chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. That's right, I'm, I'm referring to it as a treasure chamber. There's lots of things for us to find there. And you may notice in verses 14 and 16, they each contain an appeal. They each say, let us, let us. But we're actually going to start right in between them with verse 15 because actually it's here that we find the source of these encouragements. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now this verse ties together so much of what we already know about Jesus' high priesthood, but it goes deeper still. It goes deeper still. See, our natural instincts, our natural instincts tell us that Jesus is with us. He's on our side. He's present. He's helping when life is going well. But those are our natural instincts. That he's with us when life is going well. Whereas actually this verse would suggest the opposite. Not that he's not with us when life is going well, but actually it is in our weaknesses that Jesus sympathises with us. And that word translated sympathiser, actually you may have noticed, I think Mark read the NIV, an earlier version of the NIV which had sympathise. I have the updated version of the NIV which has empathise. That word translated sympathise or empathise is actually a compound word and not that you care, but here it is in Greek, okay? Sympathesi. 
Sympathize. Can you see how we get our English word sympathize from that? <laughs> Not from that, but from the way that I'm saying it. Sympathize. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, sympathy doesn't quite capture what is going on here. So as I said, it's, it's a compound word. You've got the prefix, which means with, and then it's attached to a verb, which means to suffer. Okay? And so the NIV, as I said, the, the, the updated version of the NIV translated as empathize, which is slightly better, but it still doesn't quite capture the unity that he has with us in our weaknesses. In our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as it were his own, even though it isn't. He isn't apathetic. We've, we've, we've got to get this out of our understanding of who Jesus is. He's not apathetic. He's not even sympathetic in the way that we sometimes mean it, in that he just has pity on us. He's empathetic. But it's even deeper than that. He suffers with us. And he can do so because not only has he seen how the other half lives, if you will, he's become the other half. And, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, isn't it? It's not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine, it is also that before any relief comes, that he is with us in our troubles. Like a doctor who has endured the same disease. He came as a man to normal men, a normal man to normal men. He knows what it is to be thirsty and hungry and despised and rejected and scorned and shamed and embarrassed and abandoned and misunderstood and falsely accused. He understands what it's like to be suffocated and tortured and killed. He knows what it's like to be lonely. Remember all his friends just abandoned him? He is not out of touch with our reality. He entered into our reality and endured all the things in which we endure on a day-to-day, year-on-year basis. And so one author writes, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into felt isolation. But the Bible corrects us. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Still might think, but it was easy for him, wasn't it? I mean, he never struggled like I have. He never failed like I have. He never sinned like I have. He can't understand the temptations that I face when I am alone or the stress that I face when I'm at home or the pressures that I face when I'm at work. Friends, what is crucial to understand 
as we are called to follow Jesus, is this. That he did not sin, that he did not sin, means actually that he knows temptation better than we ourselves do. See, only those who resist temptation know how strong it is. So C.S. Lewis describes um, this reality, he makes this point by speaking of a man walking against the wind and once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, well, the man lies down, doesn't he? He gives in. And therefore he doesn't know what it would be like an hour later. But Jesus never laid down. He endured all our temptations and testings without ever giving in. And therefore, actually, only he knows the true strength of temptation and the true cost of obedience. And when we succumb, we trust and we seek to follow him who did overcome. Well, now we may consider the encouragements of verses 14 and 16. Verse 14 first. Therefore, the author writes, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. You see, sadly, and you will know this from either your own experience or the experience of others, it is possible to drift. Back also in Hebrews we read, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now that is a nautical term. It's a nautical term that we do not drift away. The danger is that if we don't concentrate on Christ in our day-to-day lives, week-to-week, year-on-year, if we don't cling to him, wherever we may be, whatever we may be doing, we will simply drift away. Guess what? No effort is required on our part. A boat that has not been anchored is at the mercy of the tide, isn't it? And the currents of the world will mean we drift from the moorings of the gospel unless we're anchored to our Saviour. So this is the, the, the message really of Hebrews. But as we hold firmly to the faith that we profess, notice who is holding firmly to us. See that, that first clause there? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Now, we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about what Jesus is doing now, do we? I mean, we know what he has done for us. We preach it, what he has done for us. But what about, what is he doing for us? What is he doing for us now? Now, in Hebrews, the topic um, or or theme of Jesus' high priesthood actually continues on for several more chapters um, uh, after our text today. And so all the way in chapter 7, we read this. Because Jesus lives forever... He has a permanent priesthood. It's already been established. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. 
He always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for you. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf even today in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. He doesn't forgive us through his work on the cross and then just sort of hope that we make it the rest of the way. When Jesus says, it is finished on the cross, he didn't mean that he was finished. No, no, he would continue to work to guarantee the perseverance of the saints always interceding for us. And so when we struggle to persevere, and friends, my word, 2021 has been one of those years, hasn't it? When we struggle to persevere and attempt to give up, we can remember that someone is always praying for us and not just anyone, the King of Kings, our great high priest. And now verse 16. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now the word prayer is not mentioned here, but that is the reality to which he is referring. Because we have a great high priest, the throne of God above is a throne of grace. And because of what Jesus has done and is doing, we may approach it with confidence. And there, friends, you will find mercy and receive grace to help you in your time of need. But of course, the condition is that in light of the person and the work of Jesus, we actually pray. We actually come before him If we fail to pray, we we rob ourselves, don't we, of the great timely resources that God holds for us. See, some folks to whom this letter was written, okay, so this is a letter written to a group of Christians. Some folks to whom this letter was written had allowed the, the mounting hardships and the things going on around them in their world at the time to draw them away from God rather than closer by prayer. So here's my question. Has, uh, let's start with 2020. Did 2020, has 2021 made you draw away from the throne of grace or draw near? We don't know what 2022 will bring, do we? It could get worse before it gets better, more frustrating before it becomes more pleasant. But wherever you find yourself, whatever you find yourself doing, hold firmly to the faith you profess and approach God with confidence that you may receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Well, here ends our series, Beyond the Manger. Brief four-week series in the lead-up to Christmas. And we need to read this also in Hebrews 13. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
friends, the world, particularly at Christmas time, would minimise Jesus, would trivialise Jesus. But the Jesus whose birthday we celebrate every Christmas, he's our God. He's our peacemaker. He's our example. And he's our great high priest. He is a high priest to end all high priests. He alone is worthy of being trusted and treasured. So this Christmas, let us adore him who lay in the manger for who he is and what he has done and is doing for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This Christmas, may we celebrate Christmas for all that it truly means. And may we find Christ bigger than we ever have before. Amen.